Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with tremendous pleasure and sincerity that I am really excited to be here in this conversation today. And I'm your host, Matt Trinkon, and our guest today is none other than Mr. Jesse Harless. I'm going to read you the bio I have here of Jesse, just so you can get an idea of where we're going today. And I encourage you to sit back wherever you're at and really put your antennas up because this conversation, I've been looking forward to this one for the moment that it was booked on my calendar. So let me read a little bit about Jesse here. Jesse is a leader in trauma-informed facilitation, addiction recovery, and mental health space. His passion is to help ambitious, heart-centered leaders and purpose-driven organizations clear obstacles out of their path and live in alignment with their highest potential. Jesse is the author of two books, holds a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling, is a certified professional coach and facilitator, and a HeartMath certified trainer. Jesse takes an integrative and holistic approach to healing from trauma and addictions in his coaching. He's worked with thousands of individuals ranging from entrepreneurs, corporate clients, and moms. You can learn more about his story and toolkit in his new book, If Not You, Then Who, on Amazon. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is my sincere pleasure to introduce you today to Mr. Jesse Harless. Jesse, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for that introduction. And yeah, I love the energy, man. Thank you so much for that intro. And I'm really excited to dive in with you today with this conversation. Me too. Yeah. One of the things I love about you instantaneously, because I met you through the exchange community and we've been for eight minutes, at least we've been in a Zoom room together. Didn't go too deep personally there. But I knew of you. I've been around you a little bit. One of the reasons I love you, I'm a real admirer of people that are able to transparently share their story and just lay it all on the table. And you have done that in your book and you've done that. And every chance, every time I've been around you or heard you speak, you've always been very transparent. I respect the heck out of that. So I am excited to have this conversation today about things in the sphere of addiction and how we may be able to serve the world. Let's start with the hard stuff. If you could take us back to a time when before you were this coach and before you had conquered addiction or before you'd made progress in your addiction journey, can you take us back to one of the hardest moments or rock bottom moment. Describe to us what you feel. Yeah, it's been a minute. I I used to share these stories a lot because of the fellowship that I was in. And it was a common thing to share your story over it. And and eventually I left the fellowship to be able to really just do some other work. Because someone once said to me that you don't really understand something until you leave it. And I started to understand a lot more about myself when that happened. So I'll just let come in whatever is going to come in about the past, which is the typical family epigenetic passed down addiction from my father. My uncles were alcoholics, my father. And so 
addiction, mental health challenges were the norm. Let's say genetically, epigenetically got passed to me. And at three years old, my dad left for good. He was addicted to cocaine and alcohol. And then it was in a car accident that caused permanent brain damage. And then he was out of my life. And he didn't pass away, but he had enough damage to his brain that he wasn't in communication with me for the next 17 years until he passed away of alcoholism directly. So addiction, that type of stuff, it chose me. I didn't choose addiction, but eventually my choices made it clear that I was choosing it. But that's a whole other discussion we could talk about later in the show about choice. But that's where I guess it started in some ways. And from there, it was just a matter of navigating a life of living with a single mom and having different ways of coping as my mom really did the best she could and a really great job dealing with her own anxiety, her own challenges she had. And But that got passed on to me. I had a lot of anxiety crippled with fear as a child and then get addicted early on to internet pornography at 11 and 12 years old. And that was like way back in the 90s, early. So we're talking 95 or 96 and just ran with gaming addiction and then internet pornography and then social isolation and then being late for school and all these things that kind of piled up to not so much substance use, but that would come later on in college was a way to numb out. But I have many friends who in high school were shooting heroin. But for me, I was just not having a go at life. It was more just very anxious in my body. And I couldn't really shake that. And I couldn't also communicate that. I didn't know how to communicate how I felt. So I just kept it inside and lived in my head. And living in my head created a whole reality of misperception. And so that led to going to college and flunking out and getting arrested and all these things that happened that first semester to get eventually kicked out second semester, and then going on a tear of heroin, opioids, cocaine, and really going down that path for a couple of years until it came to an abrupt end. (laughs) And the abrupt end wasn't by choice. It was by my actions and being arrested. And that was 22. So at 22, I now had a choice to make, spend time in federal prison or follow these instructions here that we have laid out for you that are really only one way street because there wasn't a lot of options for getting well other than court appointed therapist, which I'm very grateful for, and also mandatory 12 step meetings. So that's what I had to do at 22, court ordered And eventually that led to finding a mentor and then finding journaling as an everyday habit to doing affirmations as an everyday habit. And I was really blessed that I found that early on because of this mentor who was a pastor of a church. And he just took me on because he knew that the criminal offenses I had committed were pretty serious. So he just took the time weekly to meet with me. And I was also meeting with people who are mentors in the 12-step fellowship. And I was all in. So it was all in work. There wasn't rehab. I didn't go to drug court. There was no drug court at the time. So I just did the hold on to my seat and just pray and do affirmations and do the deal that was in front of me. And so that was the start at 22 that led into the life of recovery. Thank you for sharing so openly this first stage life. I think it just goes to show our listeners or anyone out there that we never know what's going on in someone's world. We never know the some of the experiences they've been through and somewhat known you professionally and have had this great admiration and respect. And now putting some of the background pieces, it's even heightened because to endure and or overcome the challenges with parents, with 
genetics with everything you've just shared. I'm so glad that we had this opportunity to learn with you today. So thank you so far. Let's keep moving forward. Yeah, I'll, you know what? I'm just gonna let the universe decide. We'll take it from here. How might you want to move forward in the story from here, Jesse? Yeah, so I guess the story from there stayed pretty much the same for the next seven years or so. It stayed in that realm. I grew up in apartments. We lost our house when my dad got addicted to cocaine. We lost my house. And from there, we bounced from apartment to apartment. So I was really looking forward to buying my first home and really having this experience of living in a home. And so I ended up buying my first home about seven years into my process. And that sort of started to show me that I had more of control of my reality than I thought. And that sort of led to me being more intentional about my actions in my job. And eventually that led to winning awards at my job and starting to realize, oh, wow, like I'm tapping into these parts of me that I didn't know were there be, that are superpowers and sales and communication with people and being authentic. And that led into me reading books, new books, and eventually 2015, I read The Miracle Morning, and I was already reading many books, but 2015, reading The Miracle Morning. Give me the date. When did you start reading that? Because that's when I started, July 22nd Uh, is when I started that year. July 22nd, it probably, for me, was June, June of that year. Are you a practice practitioner of The Miracle Morning? Still to this day? Yeah, I did that every single day. In fact, Hal just sent me a text message a couple of days ago, and he sent me a picture of a post I did in the Miracle Morning community when it was way smaller. There was probably 15,000 people instead of 400,000, which there is now. And it was a post I did about my every day sticking to that savers process, which is the Miracle Morning process. He actually sent me a text as a reminder. That was a foundation. Those six habits in the morning was the foundation that would launch me into entrepreneurship. And I always give Hal credit with that part of my story that the Miracle Morning, I was at Verizon Wireless and I was in this crossroad point. And next thing I read the Miracle Morning, I started taking cold showers every day. I started just going all in. And next thing you know, I won the highest award in the company at Verizon. And then when I won that award, I came back and pretty much chose my job in some ways. And then when I had that happen, I was like, Hal has an event in Chicago. Let me go meet Hal and thank him for his book. And when I met him, I was like, I want to be an entrepreneur. After meeting John Berghoff and Hal at that conference, I said to myself, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I was planning then to leave the job that I had just landed my dream job. At the Verizon. Dr- yeah, now you're the top guy. Now I'm going to leave the job. So <laughs> that's the arc of the story. It goes into that. And then eventually... A year later, I would leave my job and start Entrepreneurs in Recovery, which was just an adaptation of when I look back on my life, I said, what would I even do as an entrepreneur? And I said, I might as well study entrepreneurs who have been recovering from trauma, been recovering from addiction for substances, addiction from sex, addiction from procrastination, workaholism. And I just started to really one, I got became very curious and that has continued and it has shaped and changed a lot over the last six years of that journey. But 2017, that's when I left the job to start the Entrepreneur's Recovery Path. What was that like the first time you met Hal face-to-face in Chicago after you'd been doing the Miracle Morning and you felt that gratitude? What was that like? Oh my God, I cried. I cried my eyes out. I brought my best friend, Pete, and we had both left our jobs around the same time. And He was also doing the Miracle Morning and we went out there and met Hal and hugged him and thanked him. And there was like a lot of emotional moments because John Berghoff, who I 
didn't even go there to meet. I was going there to meet Hal, but John led a visualization during that event. And I was just buckets and tears because I was like, whoa, my life has come so far. And these individuals who are around my age are doing these big things that are cool that I want to try to give it a shot. And if I fail, I'll just go back to working again. So I meeting Hal and him signing the book, which is right behind me back from 2016. Yeah. And, that, and then, of course, I joined his mastermind and got closer to Hal and there's a whole backstory with how publishing the Miracle Morning for Addiction Recovery. That was our idea. Me and my best friend's idea was to publish the Miracle Morning for Addiction Recovery. And we did a big proposal to Hal. And then Hal actually chose Joe Polish and Anna David to write the book because they have a very big platform. And so Hal said, hey, I'll put you in the book because you had the idea. And so I'm really grateful for all of that happening, actually, because... I didn't want to actually write the book. Once actually I saw the what was put there, I said, this is not for us to write. It's for them to write and us just to have the spark to get that into the world. Yeah. Wow. Super cool story. Likewise, had a very similar uh, response. First time I met Hal, I met him at a Front Row Dads retreat and randomly we got paired together. My very first experience ever at a Front Row Dads event. Hal's my partner. And I've read it, yeah. I've been reading his book for the last at that time, about four years, practicing the Miracle Morning and had a real good connection with him and been around him in a number of cases now. And I've always loved this man. Uh, and then Berghoff yeah. was episode one on my show. And of course, I respect oh. and love him too, because he's front row dad and he's a Cutco guy and he's the exchange leader. I'm exchange guy too. So uh, I'm so glad we can connect around these people. Back to you were talking about like everyday habits. You're a journaler every day. You're an affirmations guy every day. I'm curious how those things may have played a role in starting to battle fear, anxiety, addiction. Just can you talk about those habits and how that helped you to battle some of these challenges. Yeah. One of the other habits was caffeine. And I knew caffeine was leading towards, was actually contributing to my anxiety at the time. And I was drinking an obsessive amount at the time, a couple Red Bulls and doing even sugar-free Red Bulls. But I was just drinking a lot of caffeine around 2015. So I'd also quit caffeine and replaced okay. it with cold showers and started to utilize cold therapy more. So combining the habits of journaling and cold showers and also looking at my diet and and including more, not just water, but even like looking at more smoothies and getting more just healthy fruits and vegetables and just whatever I could do, better quality products. I okay. started to feel better. And that was the catalyst to tackling my anxiety because the anxiety had been there since I was a child and it was still there when I left the job. I didn't actually completely have this shift in my anxiety until probably a couple of years ago. So even though I left the job and I had done all this work and quit caffeine and did the cold therapy, I still had the anxiety. And by the way, like I had done a lot of work psychologically. I had a therapist for nine years. I was on SSRIs for seven years. I had done lots of CBT, I mean, you name it, all of that. And I had also got my master's in clinical mental health counseling. So I tried all these ways to help my own anxiety, but it still was there. It took more work later into the journey to really get to more of the root of the anxiety. And that was really in the recent last couple of years where I've been able to take a look. And now I actually drink caffeine again and it doesn't bother me in that way. So it's very interesting. There's been a flip of a reversal where well, now I can drink caffeine moderately and it doesn't cause anxiety. So it's really interesting because I quit caffeine for seven years and implemented it back again in small doses, I think about a year and a half ago. It's been an interesting take yeah. on the journey of anxiety for sure. Yeah, well, you 
so you've been working on your mental health and working on your inner game for some time. And it's been only the last couple of years, you've made a major breakthrough. So what was the, I guess, the lever that you pulled that empowered you to have this major breakthrough in the last couple of years, Jesse? Uh, January of 2021, I had been blown open with what was happening in the world and going down all these rabbit holes and just what is happening. And between that and my own imposter syndrome, I started to feel on the beginning of that year, it became very overwhelming. And I was about to publish my book. So all of it was happening at once. And at that time, I had turned to a book called Inner Bonding, which is about inner child therapy. And that book really started to blow open this inner dialogue with a part of me that's ancient and sacred and the intuitive part of me that I often neglect to go into my mind and live in the world of the mind. And so I started to pay more attention to this part of me that I was abandoning constantly. That was my heart. That was my body <laughs> that was speaking to me. But I love to stay in the mind. So I started to really incorporate this inner bonding process. And I published the book a month later. And a lot of times when you work hard at something and you actually complete it, you feel depressed. That actually happened to me. I would do something big and complete it. And then I'd feel depression instead of excitement. Huh. And that happened after I published the book. And then what I found myself is two months later, I had been really studying the world of psychedelic assisted therapy because okay. I met a guy named Dr. Dan Engel in 2018 at a GoBundance event. And he spoke about psychedelics, but he also was just someone who answered all my questions about why would someone in long-term recovery from substances, anxiety, all these things do psychedelics. And he had a great answer. And he also was someone who was like, why wouldn't they do it to increase their intuition and spiritual connection and mystical experience? And I'm like, oh, I didn't really think of that. And then because in my world, that's a relapse. In my world, that is going off the wagon. In my world, that is you're going to drink 40 beers if you do that. So I had to really look at this programming over four years before I made a decision in 2021 to try psychedelic assisted therapy. And when I did that, that became the spark of getting to more of the root of the anxiety. And that became the work, working with a psychedelic assisted integration specialist. Okay. I started to get to the core of where this anxiety was stored. And over time, doing the integration, I started to see that this anxiety is rooted and embedded in very, very deep parts of stories of trauma that were happened at seven and 10. And I started to see them through these experiences in these medicines. And then coming out and talking to this integration specialist, I really started to have these huge moments of bliss and happiness I've never seen. And I'm talking not on any meta, just being in my normal world. And I said, I really got to go deeper. And, and that became the journey of going into the depths of the shadow, which Carl you know, Jung talks about, and looking at what's my stuff, what's not my stuff, what's intergenerational trauma passed to me, what's my own stuff. And that started to really loosen up the anxiety in ways that is really today not completely gone, but the strength of it and the intensity is much less. I know where it comes from. Wow. I am a little speechless at the moment because there's a lot to unpack of what you shared. The, th the thing that comes up is the idea of psychedelic therapy for someone who had the challenges you had at 22, right? It just sounds like that could be a very slippery slope. What was it you needed to come to in your mind to make that okay? 
Yeah, I had to do my own educational. I had to, I had to get education. I had to understand okay. what I was stepping into. Yeah. I was 15 years in abstinent sobriety, 100% abstinent. So I was someone who was the poster boy for recovery, sobriety, abstinence. And I wanted to make sure that if I was going to make that decision that I not only had the background for medical testing to make sure that the blood test results were good, but also that I had someone to guide me through that process. And so that integration process with a guide is the reason I stepped into it after reading books and educating myself and aligning with many people that I'm blessed to know through networks of these people we've mentioned. I was able to confidently try that at my own pace at very small levels. And that let me tiptoe into experiences that became more intense, but with great care. And yeah, so it took many years as this renaissance is growing. It was already happening around me with my friends who were long-term abstinence that were already trying this and me watching them and seeing, let me see if their life goes down the tube or what happens. And their life was actually getting better. So I had real case studies and I said, let me do this the best way I can surgically journaling every everything that happened, talking to this specialist. And that's what I recommend for anyone stepping into this is, and then this is really the issue of the problem is people can't afford to have someone to work with as, unless they're an entrepreneur or they have access to resources financially, it's not easy to have someone to guide you through these processes and then have someone to work with and plus navigating the legality of it. So there's a lot of challenges I had to step into that because I was really prompted at the time to follow my soul calling, which was like, hey, I want to get to the root of what's happening with this anxiety. And I was able to do that with great care with a guide. So let's just say that you're journaling every day. You're going through this a little bit at a time, this journey of the psychedelic, and you have a guide. I mentioned that part very specifically. There's a guide. So you have a guide. You're going through this experience. Are you able to remember and recall so you can write in your journal the things that are happening on these journeys? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Not everyone likes that structure. Some people, that's very rigid to write down everything that happens in a journey or stuff. But I like that. I want to write it down. I want to know everything about it. And so I thrive in that type of environment. So I was able to start really small and then work my way up. And then eventually what happened was I went to Costa Rica and I had a very large experience in Costa Rica with ayahuasca and peyote and having this big experience because obviously the legality is different there. So I was able to do that in a setting that really allowed me to let go and release. And it was also a safe environment with many guides there. And so I was able to really release like I never have. And ironically, the date of it is really funny. It was on 2-22-2022. That's the date where I actually had that. So it was like this crazy number synchronicity, but I had this big release and I got to see my trauma all thrown on a projector screen right here. And I got to really see things I couldn't see. It was very intense. And then I have the, what they call the mystical experience that you can have on these medicines on the next journey, the day after with peyote. And that's where I started to realize Bill Wilson, who's the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, where he had an awakening with the belladonna treatment that's in the big book, which is sort of a psychedelic. And that experience later in life, I think was a catalyst for him trying LSD to help him with his own depression and his own addiction 
which I can understand at that time was like a sex addiction. So it really made me look and say, what are these here for? Why did Source or God, whoever put these here for us to learn about ourselves with and do these responsibly? And so that sort of was the big spark in 2022 to be really wanted to understand and get my own training. I started a training to learn more about the facilitation and a harm reduction model of these psychedelic medicines. So that's where it started. And then from there, it has just branched into just more education and me becoming certified as a facilitator myself so that a lot of people navigating these journeys are not alone because there's a lot of stigma in the space, of course. That stigma, I want to just want to make a statement. I feel I have this curiosity or open mind to ideas. I'm curious about them. So when you're talking about this, I have removed the stigma because I see that it can be used for good. And many people, they may not pause and take the time to journal or think or be aware that this could serve people. They just have this negative box. I don't even think about it. It's a negative thing. It's illegal. It's not right. Well, you're someone that's testifying right now. This has been a game changer. This has literally changed your life and your relationship with anxiety. It's been a real positive. Yeah. My whole journey has been really to understand why I have this challenging earth experience of being here and being content and feeling good. And I wondered if it was like, is it the childhood trauma? Is it the body keeps the score and the cells and all these things? And I'm like epigenetic. And I'm just trying to figure out, navigate this whole thing with education and all this psychotherapy. And of course, with spirituality, but and all kinds of different types of recovery groups. But I really didn't get to the core of it until I was able to drop into my body. And it was very challenging, by the way, like these experiences weren't all love and light. These were extremely challenging, many of them, to be able to look at yourself in a new way that it's almost growing up. Whoa, I feel like I grew up a lot over the last couple of years of having these life experiences. I was the youngest child in my family. So I never had a long-term relationship last more than three months. I had no children. And I had to really look at what is at the root of this isolation that I have? What is the root of this? And a lot of that was this life built in the mind, the life of I need to achieve, I need to do these things to get validation because I grew up poor and because I got arrested. And I just was putting all these ornaments on myself and degrees and all these things. But the reality is I was just really running from myself. I was really just running from the true self, which is I'm not perfect. There's all kinds of different things that are me that make me myself and unique and dry humor. And that's all good. And so the anxiety really started to settle in when I just started to accept that, oh, in this lifetime, this is what it's like for me. And then I can also make some changes in some areas. But ultimately, I'm this person and I like this person and I have wants and needs and desires that I can make more space and ask for and set boundaries and ask for things I need. That was at the root of the anxiety was just not making more space for myself, not asking for my needs to be met, not saying no to people like I was 38 years old. And if you asked me something, I'd say, yes, I'll do it. And even if it was for free, like I just help everyone. And the problem with that is I was really bypassing my feelings. I wasn't feeling my feelings and sitting with feelings. And I am by no way in shape or form an expert at that today, but I am way further than I was. And with the help of really great guides and mentors and all kinds of work that I've led up to it, including the Miracle Morning, all of it was a foundation stone, including 12-step fellowships, foundation stone for principles, values, and guidelines for me to not to go off the rails and understand, oh, this could be a path for some, not for all. But for some, this could be a really healing path. And I wanted to understand it. 
Yes. You made a comment a minute ago. You said that you got to a place where you like yourself. And I'm curious, have you always liked yourself? Or did you have to do all the work to finally get to a place where you can be comfortable in your own skin and, and like Jesse Harless? Yeah, for sure. I would tell you I liked myself. I would tell you to like yourself. But really, I did it at the core. There was this part of me that felt broken. There was a part of me that felt insecure. And there was these parts of me that never could that lived in the stories of my past. Like no matter what, I couldn't get past those stories. And then that all got challenged. And especially in the last year, and especially in relationship, when I met my partner, I really got to see in a new way that like, wow, these things that I'm telling myself are actually projections and they're not actually accurate. And when I started to have a, a reflection of a mirror as I shared these things and challenge of these things, I started to realize, wow, I've been doing this my whole life. Even your closest friends and family, they are only going to be able to tell you so much about you. You have to start to understand yourself through this deep inner investigation of like, why am I not getting the results I want? Why am I not getting the sales I want? Why am I not happy? Why am I still single? Why am I struggling in my relationship? So I started to be able to have this incredible experience with a loving partner to be able to see the mirror of myself, which along with the other healing modalities I was using, it really became a catalyst for stepping into the new year of 2024 going, hey, I have a lot more clarity of who I want to be. And yeah, that sort of led up to us coming into this conversation. And so I think it's all connected. And I'm really grateful for being in a, a loving partnership with someone who will call me out on my shit and also be open for me to do the same with her so that we can really have our best year ever and not just say that as an affirmation and then bypass all our feelings and not actually look at like our addictions. Because once you have an addiction, you might not even think you have addiction, but then you really look at what addiction is and you're like, oh my God, I got an addiction to this story that I'll never be good enough. Or I have an addiction yeah. that I'll never be lovable. Or I have an addiction that I need to work 90 hours a week to be validated by my achievements. Addiction is not just substances. This is the arc of the conversation. is Addiction is just any behavior that you do repeatedly that causes problems in the short term and in your personal relationships. And, you know, is going to cause eventual bypassing of your feelings and not really seeing kind of the truth of yourself. And it's really interesting to be looking at addiction from the lens of addiction to me is the norm. What I see out today with the foods we eat and what I see today with a lot of the stuff that we're fed right from when we were really young and what we're supposed to memorize and know versus what could really help us thrive as humans. Yes. I look at this as, oh, if you make it out alive and healthy and you make it a good life for yourself, that's like a rare thing, I think, in many ways. I think it can be really challenging for a lot of humans to thrive in the current way life is set up. So I think that instead of playing the victim of that, it's like, how do I get access to this knowledge that we have? How do people get knowledge of the miracle morning? Or how do they get knowledge of a free cold shower that can help to change their state or their chemistry, biochemistry, or just all these things that we probably take for granted that have been hugely helpful in our journey. I think that like you have the thing right there, everything is figure outable. I think it is, but we're not taught to open our hearts. We're not taught to, hey, I need to ask for help. I'm struggling. Yes. I didn't learn that. I learned that abruptly at 22 because I was arrested, but I didn't really truly know how to ask for help until the last several years. 
I'm getting really inspired right now. Here's just something that just came out of my brain and in my heart. And here it is. I just drew a Venn diagram and it is connection. It's energy and it's transparency in the middle of that. I feel alive and able to really be connected with oneness or connected with God or connected in love or connected with you. And I'm really feeling that because I think the catalyst for me is to be around someone who talks with so much transparency and conviction and energy around service or around overcoming their stuff and helping others to do that. I feel like really connected as one right now, in a way, if I could say that. It's an interesting feeling. I get that way when I feel I am connected to another person who's transparent and being real about it. Does any of that resonate? Any of that? Oh, whole? yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's the medicine is when you meet someone who's real and authentic and create safety for you, you can really go far. You can have this almost stream of consciousness as the flow state to be able to hit places you didn't even know existed. And then all of a sudden time doesn't exist. And then you have this incredible experience, which almost feels mystical, but it's just the power of conversation. And as we learned in exchange, psychological safety, creating that container where, hey, I know right now my voice is being heard because Matt is right here with me holding space and I'm able to allow myself to channel through whatever wants to come in and without any type of judgment. And even if you disagreed, I feel safe enough that we could dialogue with that. And I think in society, we don't have that readily available because we don't know how to create safety for each other to have conversations worth having. And so I, I feel like that's what's happening in this synergy here. And it's, yeah, I feel the same. Totally agree. And you just said the trigger word for me. You said conversations worth having. One of my favorite books with uh, Jackie yeah. Stavros and Sherry Torres. I remember in that book, I use this in some of the speeches I give. It's the power of the conversation. It's infinite and limitless right here, wherever right now, when you can be real and just be safe with someone. And, and I feel pretty safe talking with you because you're sharing authentically. That's like the trigger point for me. If someone can share authentically, then I feel compelled to share too. And since you went first, I feel really safe. So the medicine is being able to create a psychologically safe environment with people and just be with them and the powers in the conversation. That's what I'm hearing and feeling. That's good stuff. How do you create that with people who are so guarded and who aren't willing to be or who don't know how to be safe or don't know how to be open and share? How do you go about creating that as a facilitator, as someone who is able to offer therapy and coaching? How do you do that, Jesse? Yeah, it's different in the one-on-one than it is in a group, I would say. I think for me, I love one-on-ones. It's a lot easier, I think, to create safety. But if you're in a group of 17 people and they all have different roles and positions and titles and they don't have coherent communication within the group and there's all different types of feelings and resentment and there's power struggles and stuff. So to create that in an environment that doesn't normally have that or doesn't really know how to create that. But you really start with getting them talking to each other in pairs. So really starting off with a question that's generative to have a question that's worth actually talking about that's understandable and accessible. That would be the first step. We learned, and obviously if people who don't know exchange and John Berghoff's work, a lot of that work is creating safety through generative questions. And I think with a group as a facilitator and a trainer, when I go into groups or companies, I'm right away getting myself out of the way. I'm right away trying to be the guide on the side. I don't want to come in. And I have done that, by the way. I have come in and been like, here's my story. Here's what it's. And then I notice when you do that, there are certain people that are like eating popcorn, loving it. And there's certain people that are like, they're gone. They're like, dude, who are you? 
And so what I like to do is enable the room to meet each other. So to have an opportunity to speak and ask a question that is understandable and accessible to the language of that particular community, and then have them dialogue with each other in small groups or pairs to talk about why did we even show up today? Why is it important that we're here today? And starting from the purpose question, and then getting into the things that actually matter to them. And what I find in the space of addiction recovery, in the space of mental health, that there's nothing more important than having conversations where people feel heard. And you can really do that through choreographing great questions that Mm -hmm. are based on an idea that if all voices are heard as soon as possible in any meeting, group, or event, and if people feel they can take risks early on, the success of that gathering and people feeling a sense of community and belonging is much higher than if I'm coming in and I'm speaking at people. And I'm certainly, I love speakers, man. I love great speakers. God, I have people come on my podcast and they're speaking all over the world and I love listening to them. But I think for me, I've done a lot of speaking, especially in the world of addiction recovery. I don't enjoy that as much as being a facilitator or a guide on the side to ask great questions. That lights me up because when I hear their responses, I feel this energy that is like a buzzing sensation that arcs into the next activity that is still about them. Even though I might teach a little bit of insight, it's still about them. It's still about like their experience of what it's like to be in communication, to see each other and see each other's strengths in a new way, simply by having a question such as, hey, why is this important for us to be here today to talk about this topic? <laughs> like something simple yes. like that. Yep. Yeah, I love that question because as being someone also who's exchange trained and I do facilitation and that methodology, I did it yesterday. Started off, and it's like, this has never happened before in this particular company. Never had someone come in and just start asking questions and putting them together. It's always a speaker who tells them what to do or teaches them something that hadn't made any impact, though. So this was a way that instantly I saw that impact just because of what you just described, everything you just described. It's a powerful way. Can you give us an example, Jesse? And of course, you can keep names confidential. Can you give us an example of an experience that you may have been a part of, either one-on-one or a group, that you've seen the pain or the problem or the challenge going in, and then you've helped them to walk through that journey on the road to recovery? Can you share an example? Yeah, the work I got to do in Georgia. So I started to work with the state of Georgia and they have what are called recovery community organizations, which are organizations that are in regions of a state, different parts of a state that are providing free addiction recovery services to people that can't afford to go to rehab. And they're in addition to, they're a complement to drug courts and rehabs, but they're free. So in Georgia, they have over 40 of these, what we call RCOs. And I was hired to come in to unify the strengths of the RCOs, to take the RCO as a network and allow them to help each other and to see what they're doing well and then share that with each other. Like, here's what we're doing well. Let's share what we're doing well and then see if my challenge can be solved by the things you're doing well. And so I got to work with them starting in 2019. And then when COVID hit, that was the ultimate challenge was now I have to go from in-person to online now and take a whole system, a state, through a process of really what 
I only thought you could do in person, but to do it online and then also deal with the challenges of lockdowns and unknown and on all these scary things. And there was a lot of people overdosing and dying at that time. So there was these challenges that people now couldn't go in person to go to a meeting or they couldn't find the help they could normally find. So the challenges were extremely great. What I did is I just adapted to the Zoom platform and facilitated events with this network, this RCO network. And all I did was start to get into things of resilience, like asking a resilience question in a story like, hey, we're going through this challenging time. When is a time in the past where you've been resilient? And really, what were the strengths that enabled that to happen? And so all of a sudden, we took this huge monumental challenge. And now we're looking at in the past, how can we use the past as a way to inform our present so that we can get through these challenges? And these people have been through addiction, trauma, like the worst of the worst. So they're like, shit, if we got through crack addiction, we got through trauma, all this stuff, we'll probably be able to get through COVID. And so we got to use and see, let's utilize all the strengths to be able to work through and see each other's strengths. And I was able to facilitate that process in 2020. And that led to people being able to know how to talk to each other in a new way, like a new operating system, where mm-hmm. instead of talking about all the problems and challenges, we were going to ask questions that transcend the problem. A question of when is a time when we're at our best? Instead of being like, we got all these problems because of COVID and challenges with finances. Well, when are times when we're at our best? So studying when we're at our best to be able to bring out those strengths, to be able to overcome the challenges of the now. And so being able to take the Georgia Council on Recovery is their name through the that process. And then that led to additional work over the next several years with them to continue that cycle of asking questions, innovation. And then once they felt safe enough to be able to communicate in large groups that I was putting them in, they could go and run meetings now and know how to structure their agendas where there would be no time wasted. It's, hey, let's not waste any times. We know how to structure our meetings based off of the larger container Jesse taught. We can do this in this micro 45-minute, 60-minute versions of what he taught in an all-day event or a four-hour event. And that's what it was. It was just canning and cloning, asking great questions that matter, questions that are pertinent to the vision, the mission, the purpose of a nonprofit, which is these are nonprofits. And then led to me working with the drug court, the Fulton County Drug Court, one of the biggest drug courts in the country, and being able to do the same thing with their entire staff. And I'll be working with them in June of this year for the third year in a row, or it might be the fourth year in a row, where I'm working with their whole staff of a drug court. If people don't know, a drug court is an 18-month rehabilitation process for an individual who commits a crime related to substances. And instead of throwing them in prison for two to four years, they go through an 18-month process of developing life skills and work skills to then rehabilitate themselves so that they can go into the community. And a lot of people who come out of those, they start businesses. They'll start a business. They'll start to become entrepreneurial, but they need a chance. So I have the honor of training the staff that serves these participants that instead of being incarcerated, get to be a part of this rehabilitation process. And I get to do that thanks to some of the grants that are available through the SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. But anyways, I'm going on a rant, but that's where it led to, to today.
I think you may have already answered the next question because as you're sharing all of this, I'm like, this is such a force for good. This is so needed out there. So I'm going to ask the question anyways. I'm going to borrow some of your own medicine here. Why is it important for Jesse Harless to be doing this work right now where you're at in your life? I feel like this work that I'm doing now is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing because I know it works. And if I didn't know it worked, I had doubts, I would pivot. And I've had doubts. And it's caused me to not market my services and market myself. And that's one of my biggest problems. And I think of many entrepreneurs who are solopreneurs is how do you market yourself and your services, which may be very niche. And maybe I'm very niche. My niche is like addiction recovery, mental health centers and drug courts. Like that's very niche. But what I'm doing is stuff that works at Fortune 500 companies. It works with all the biggest companies use this. I'm just synthesizing it into these spaces and it works really well. So why am I doing it? It's like a duty, a service, because I know it works. I have proof it works and it really never doesn't work. It's not that it answers every problem, but it gets people communicating better. No matter what, I come away from these events where people feel that their voice was heard. Even if it was to to argue or to say, I don't agree with what's happening in my company, or I don't agree with what's happening with these policies, their voice was heard. So at the end of the day, it's a win because they get to speak on it. And then we can really see where people maybe we'd be better off in different positions too, or maybe better off leaving the company. Like we can see through these conversations where, wow, you know what? I think I'm supposed to be doing something else here. And so that's what keeps it alive for me is all the feedback and all the results, the actual results that they're getting. And they weren't, then I would go do something else. I'd find a different path, but it seems to work and it's really exciting. I would like to just touch on one more thread here before we move to share all your social media and your books and everything. You, you made a comment. You feel it's like your duty. It's your service. It's your duty. I'm thinking similar in my own life. My own mission as an eternal optimist is to bring a hope and you can do it to attitude and strategy to anyone out there. And I do it through business coaching. And I feel so called to do this. It is my duty. I have a skill. I have a calling. I can help people this way. It's my duty. And I feel like you have the same ethos that because you're able to, you do it for the betterment of others. And by the way, it also serves you and it serves serve myself too. It feels like your duty is born out of this inner dialogue or the standard that you've overcome this big thing. And now I need to teach others how to do it too. Does any of that yeah, resonate? Every, yeah. And everything matters. Even from the beginning of the story at yes. three, all the way to today, it yes. all matters because yes. when I'm facilitating, all of a sudden I realize, oh my God, nothing was wasted. Every single thing that happened to me, every decision I made, good or bad, it all is serving me now as I facilitate conversations because all of a sudden someone's saying something and I can be empathetic because I actually had that happen to me or I had been in a conversation with someone who that had happened to. And I never would be in that conversation if that didn't happen to me. And so instead of looking at the past as these wounds that are never going to leave me and it's my punishment for karma, I look at it like these are great gifts that were learning tools and catalysts that now I can help others to go, wow, I guess that experience can be used for good as hard as it's been and the grief that it caused. Maybe there is some light at the end of this that I could help others to see that maybe there's something there. And there's some people go through really challenging things. And I think that 
to be able to just be content in your body and yourself, which took a long time for me to be. Doing this work really puts me in my body, which is interesting. I've tried to escape into my head for most of my life, but when I facilitate and I do this, I find myself in my body and I go, oh, this is the work I'm supposed to be doing clearly because I'm now I would do it for free. So I know that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think that's for anyone listening. What puts you in your body in the flow state, you lose track of time and that you do for free. Maybe that's the work you might want to start to pursue, even if it's part time. Wow. Amazing. Thank you, Jesse. This has been amazing. I'm curious. Every once in a while, your left hand comes up and I see a tattoo on there. And I'm curious what the significance is of this tattoo over here. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's really funny because I've had no tattoos for 40 years. And then I went to Tepeslin, Mexico with my girlfriend. And we were like, hey, I have no tattoos. I might as well go big, right? Go big or go home. Extreme. And we decided on getting this tattoo, which is, it stands for unconditional love. So it's like what this is all about, really. At the end of the day, we do all these things to achieve and help our families and society. But at the end of the day, if I don't love myself, it's going to be really challenging to be integrity with myself. So I just said, you know what, whatever, let's get it right on the hand where everyone could see. And it was my second tattoo. My first one happened about an hour before it, which is on my arm over here. Yeah, that that's the story. We went to Tepa's land. I was actually doing a medicine training actually in Mexico because it's not legal here. So I went down there to do the training okay. and be, learn how to facilitate. And so when I was there, I said, let's get my first two tattoos. And so thank you to, uh, to April. Awesome. Jesse, where are the best places that we can find you online to learn more with you, to book a call with you even? Just how can we find you? Yeah, I would just go to jesseharless.com or go to jesseharless222 on Instagram and send me a message. I respond to every message. So go ahead and send me a message and be happy to connect with you or connect you to someone that may be able to help you. Everyone who's listening, jesseharless.com. This is not just your, I put it together on Wix in two minutes website. This is actually pretty fascinating. It, it wows you just to open it. I'm looking at it right now. We've got the book in there. Man, look at all this stuff. You've been on a bunch. How many podcasts and shows have you done so far, Jesse? My first book, Smash Your Comfort Zone with Cold Showers, really got me on a lot of podcasts because that was in 2018 before this whole cold thing blew up, the cold plunging blew up. So I was able to get on a lot of shows, which I have no idea what I even said back then, but I I was able to get on a bunch of podcasts because of the cold shower book. So I don't know. It's been a lot. It's been a lot of podcasts for sure. There are a number of them on here. And I know some of these are some amazing shows. You've been on with Julie Riesler. I was there recently. You've been on with Roman and Sachin Patel. And wow, look at all this is super cool. Oh, oh, he got for those of you out there who don't know what Jesse looks like, he got a picture of him with his shirt off just posing and he's ripped. Oh, yeah, that at the time I was really ripped. I was doing some type of specific movement. But uh today I, that's my goal 2024 is get into more of that. Heck yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast before we go? I'd love to throw a plug in there for that. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So the podcast is called Entrepreneurs in Recovery Podcast. And basically, I started that in June. It was a five-year process. I really couldn't pull the trigger until I was ready. And last year, I was ready because I had a message very clearly stated to me that came from within that was like, now's the time. And so it's really a podcast for people that I've met along the journey that are doing great work in the world, that are entrepreneurs or even entrepreneurs in companies that are have had traumatic experiences and addiction and different ways of healing them. And so I bring them on the show to talk about their story and to talk about 
what they're working on and manifesting in their life. And we just have a real authentic conversation. I try not to ask I like to listen to the podcast they've used to be on. So I'm not asking the same questions that everyone wants to ask them. So uh, I like to spice it up with something they don't expect in every episode. Yeah, we're releasing the 20th episode this week. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, this is awesome. Check out this podcast, Entrepreneurs in Recovery. And I want to ask you a question now. I feel a little bit exposed. I want to ask you something no one's asked you. I thought that the tattoo was probably pretty good since it's newer. So that that might be the first reveal to the world. I'm a little curious, though, because every time I've ever seen you have not ever had any facial hair. So how long have you had the facial hair? If you could tell us a little bit about that, because I've always known you as clean on top all over the face. <laughs> yeah. And I also had glasses too for my whole yeah, life. I, until, I also, yeah. When I first met yeah. you, you had glasses. Yes. So I had this process without going too deep. I had this pro- cathartic process of a really big release in the end of 2022. And that process really helped me to start to challenge and tackle my so-called dragons that I considered dragons. Like I had this fear of being beat up. I had all these fears of being too skinny and being beat up and all these things. And I said, what can I do about that? And I signed up for jujitsu and I got my ass handed to me for a while. And at the same time, I said, I'm also going to try to grow my beard and mustache and I'm going to get contacts because I don't want to do jujitsu with glasses. So I started to just like embrace my ability to live in fear. I had such a fear of not being clean cut and wearing glasses. I just felt like that was my identity. And when I started to do jujitsu and let the beard grow and the mustache, I was like, I felt free. I felt like even more anxiety go away. I felt like I was stepping into me just as a child when I was like free, when I felt like a 10 years old and and these feelings started coming back. So I wasn't even able to actually grow a mustache and facial hair until the last couple of years, which sounds weird. And I don't know if that's because of dietary changes or it's because of these psychedelic medicines. I don't know. It sounds crazy and BS, but I literally have been trying to grow a beard and mustache out at different times and I couldn't. And all of a sudden I could in 2023. So I'm just going to keep intending that this is going to happen. And I don't think I can get it on the top of my head. I think this is done. I think I'll keep growing where the hair does grow. And awesome. (laughs) Awesome. And yes, you're so authentic. It's so easy to talk with you. And I wish you the best in your journey. And everyone out there, jessieharless.com. And Entrepreneurs in Recovery is the podcast. If not you, then who? And it's available right now. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it straight from paperback. And I see right here at Amazon. So you can get it right now. And Jesse, you've made it to the lightning round. Ding, ding, ding. We're going to wrap things up with a couple last questions. And we can go down the rabbit hole if we need to. I see behind you there, there's a shelf. It's got a, a ton of books on it. If you had to recommend one or two books that have had a really impact on you, what might be one or two recommendations of books from you? Wow. Yeah. So I would be like, what in what category, what genre? Because I think if you were asking, what's a great book to read right now to really try to understand and navigate addiction and the world right now, I would say The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. That's a big one. And that's a big book. And I would say if you wanted to look into more of where psychedelic assisted therapy is going, And what it can do is A Dose of Hope by Dr. Dan Engel. So that's a great book. This year, by August, they're saying that MDMA-assisted therapy could be legal therapeutically. If that happens, then I think reading that book may be a helpful guide for people, whether they do it or not, to just 
understand trauma and understand a case study of that medicine working for an individual. And so that's a really great book. I would definitely recommend. Okay, let's go to the next. Let's go to music. If you are a musical person, then what might be a song or genre or artist that really inspires you and fills your bucket, Jesse? Ooh, music. Man, that keeps changing. At one point, it was an artist named Modest Yahoo. I saw him live several times here in New Hampshire, and I really just enjoy his music and spirit. But I would say today, what lights me up, my girlfriend's getting me into Hozier, probably something from Hozier, (laughs) some type of, they have some really creative songwriting. So I would say Hozier. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And let's go to the last question. I'll give you the last word. The name of our show is the Eternal Optimist Podcast. If I asked you, what does eternal optimist mean to you? What would you say, Jesse? Yeah, I would say that it's just being able to see the good and see the best and people and then nature and in life and knowing that there is shadow there, there is a war going on in some people and all that stuff, but be able to see the light in people and to see that regardless of what's happening in the world, there's some through line of good. And so that we can see that and move towards that instead of towards more of futility and anger. I think that's what that means to me is seeing that there's more to this and there's a lot more to this. So I think that's what that, that's what resonates for me.